All right, so I want you to think about your favorite boss. I know for some people that might be hard, um, but think about who your favorite boss is or was and what qualities they had that made them special to you. Was that boss like Yoda, who really challenged you to work hard but was there to give you words of wisdom so you would know what to do along the way? Or maybe they were like Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation, always the optimists, always cheerful. You just wanted to go to work because they were going to be happy to see you. Or were they more like Tony Stark, who believed in you even though they saw your faults and kept giving you extra chances? Think about who your favorite boss was. Now, what might be easier for us all is now think about your least favorite boss. Uh, there's not going to be a picture of Pastor Russell here, so, you know. Um, <laughs> but there is going to be one of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. This is the type of boss that is only concerned with his own success and doesn't even remember your name. They just kind of come in and rush through. Or maybe Michael Scott a boss that is a little demanding and a whole lot of crazy, and you still don't quite know how to respond to them. Or maybe the worst boss ever in literature, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is only looking at himself, always demanding more out of you, and won't even give you that one extra lump of coal so you can stay warm. And I know most of you are Florida natives, so you don't totally understand that, but we had a little taste of that on Wednesday. What was with that weather, by the way? I mean, it was cold. I was out in it, and I was thinking somehow I'd been transported to the Midwest again, but that's when you know the lump of coal is important, but you don't want a boss like that either, and God's word has a lot to say about leadership and the way we should lead and the principles of what a good leader is. And so I think that the greatest indicator of our maturity is how we handle authority and power, whether that's being a leader in the classroom, in the locker room, in the boardroom, in your home. We all have some aspect of our life where we're leading. And no one likes a boss who neglects others for their own good. Um, no one... Um, sorry. No one likes a boss who is pushy and only looking at the bottom line. We all like those bosses who come alongside us and do the things that we're doing and encourage us to be our best. Um, and it's easy for us to be judgmental on the follower side, but the fact of the matter is we don't always know how we would act once we had that kind of power in our own hands. And so we, we need to look and see what God says is important in the leadership positions that we have. And we're going to be looking and continuing with the story of David, uh, really man after God's own heart. First Samuel is my favorite book in the Bible, and it's all because of watching David and the way God uses him in David's heart. And so I'm way stoked to be talking about it today. Um, and we're going to look today at two fairly well-known stories and one that's probably not as well-known uh, in David's life that were some representations of what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to start off um, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7, if you want to get your Bibles to that. Um, and we're going to 
start this story at really kind of the beginning part of David in this book. And really one of my very favorite stories in all of scripture. And I think part of that reason is because of the years God has blessed me to pour myself into young people. So um, Saul has done some pretty bonehead things just before this. And God uh, has said he can't be king anymore. And through that, God comes to Samuel and tells him, I need you to go and anoint a new king. So Samuel, having the heart that he had for God, goes. And he, he goes to a little town you might have heard of called Bethlehem. And he is looking for the next king. And God tells him, you need to go to this one guy's house, this guy named Jesse. And one of his sons is who I want you to anoint. So uh, Samuel goes there and he... Um, finds Jesse and says, hey, I'm going to have this little sacrifice and I need to anoint somebody. So get your whole family and everybody come and come to this time of sacrifice. And so that's what they do. The whole family comes out, all the sons are there. And one by one, um, Samuel says, let me see, let me see which son it is. I know that God's going to tell me which one I'm supposed to anoint when that time comes. And so when they arrived, Samuel saw Eleb and thought, surely the Lord anointed, the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his, excuse me, do not, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that people look for. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think that's really, really true. What's the first thing you notice about somebody? You notice the way that they look. You're not like, wow, that person has a great IQ when you just see them across the room at McDonald's. You notice the way that they look. And as much as we try not to put a lot of stock in looks, it is kind of where we begin things. So in this story, Jesse has his sons come out, and his oldest son is really strong. Like He's like the rock. You know, he's got that Dwayne Johnson swag, and he's big, and he's like, yes, this is going to be the king. And he probably even gets the oil out and gets ready to throw it out. And then he hears God say, nope, not that one. And so Sam is like, okay. All right, maybe not that one. So let's see who this might be. Let's see what the second son looks like. And so Jesse's second son comes out, and um, he, his name was Adonab, and uh, he had him pass in front of Samuel. It's not my first son. It's going to be the next one for sure. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. So he heard God's voice say again, no, not him. And then... One by one, through seven sons, they come before Samuel, and God says no about every one of them. Now, you got to think of where Samuel is now. He's like, okay, God, I know that you told me to come here. I know that I'm supposed to anoint the new king, and you told me it was going to be from the house of Jesse. So where, 
where is this person? He's not come here. And so we see in scripture that Jesse then had Shema pass by him. Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse this, are these all your sons? And that's probably the way he was feeling at that point. He's like, okay, I've seen all of these. And God said, no. So is this everybody? And then Jesse says this, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So David is the last son. He's the baby of the family, and he's out tending the sheep. Now, it's easy to maybe think, why didn't he have all eight of his sons there? But it's not so hard for me because I spend a lot of time in student ministry. And when I think about the next king, I'm not generally looking at the junior high boys in our youth group of we uh, had an event here on Friday night, uh, just kind of a fun event, and boys were doing things like bobbing for raisins in Raisin Bran and putting together unicorns out of chewed up bubble gum. You know, that's not what you think of when you think of the next king, but that's the kind of stuff that they really like. And so it's not hard to think, eh, he's just a little one. He's not the one that God would want to use at all but it ends up being very different. And the scripture says, so he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. It's 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 13. So out of all of these people, all these brothers that were so right for this position, God said no, and he chose David. Now, there's not a lot in Scripture that tells us that Jesse or any of the sons or David really knew what the anointing was for. Uh, they knew it had to be important because Samuel was kind of this prophet, priest, king figure, Uh, in Israel at the time, but we don't know for sure that they really knew exactly what was happening. And all of those brothers are probably looking and thinking, you're the baby. You're the one that we make fun of. Why are you doing it here? Now, I have a different perspective because I am the baby of the family. And I realize that this meme is probably true. What? No, go the wrong way. Oh, 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 ah! You don't want to hear me sing. What's going on? Okay. Let me show it again. All right, there we go. (laughs) If you're the baby of the family, feel honored. It means your parents finally made the perfect child, so they stopped at you. So that's the way I feel. Um, And I can see Zach agrees with me. Um, But... uh, So, but they looked at him like most people do the baby. He's kind of maybe even the spoiled brat, the one at the end that always gets whatever he wants and uh, can do whatever he wants. And just, what am I going to expect from him? There's not much to him there. Um, But God looked beyond that outward appearance. God looked beyond his age and how tall he was. 
and maybe the silly ways that he acted sometimes. And he said, I look at his heart, and I can already tell that this young man has a heart for me, and his heart is to serve me and love me with everything that he has. So um, David knows that something great is going to happen. And actually, 18 months, two years later, he gets his first big moment in the spotlight when he's able to defeat Goliath. And at that point, he gets pretty well known in Israel and actually has these seven years where he is very much in good favor with uh, Saul. Uh, He gets to marry one of Saul's daughters. He becomes best friend with Jonathan, Saul's oldest son. And for those seven years, things are just great. He's part of what's going on. Uh, But then we talked about a little bit last week that Saul got threatened by David. He gets jealous and he tries to kill David. He puts a bounty on David's head and David becomes a fugitive for the next eight years. So he has these seven years that things are great and really going well. And then these eight years where He's a fugitive, and he has to run from Saul because Saul is so threatened by him. Um, But David is there, and he has men who are loyal to him, and they go with David. So he kind of has his own army. Um, But what he tries to do is very different than the way we might approach the situation. Instead of taking that army and trying to defeat the army of Saul, he decided that he would just kind of stay out of Saul's way and let God work things out. Um, Because he remembered that anointing. He remembered that time that he was anointed, and he knew God had called him out for something. But he knew this. This is one of the things that maybe the greatest thing he learned during that time of waiting. It's God's will in God's way in God's time. And I don't know about you, but I'm still learning that lesson. That I don't always get it that it's not my way in my will, in my time, that I have to wait for God to do those things. But David shows us that it really is God's will and God's way and God's time. And I think it's in the waiting that God can teach us some of the greatest lessons of our life. So this is still pretty fresh for me, this lesson. Not that, again, I always get it right. But um, I don't know how many of you know how I got here, but it was quite the road of God doing some things. And uh, part of that was that I applied for a position about a year before, and Russell said, yeah, I'll keep your resume. You all know what that means. And, you know, it's just going to toss and go away. Um, and then uh, in March of this year, I was in a very serious car accident. And um, I ended up breaking my ankle on both sides, uh, my ulna in my, well, my ankle on both sides of the left leg, both ankles, um, and my ulna on my left arm, uh, my sternum, several ribs on the other side. I mean, I was beat up in this accident. And um, I had this uh, surgery to kind of start to repair all of that. And they tell me it's going to be, six to eight weeks before you could do anything else again. I'm like, oh, great, what's that all about? So I ended up spending 10 days just in the hospital. And while I was there, what are you going to do? You're going to play on your phone and do things like that. And I see I have an email, and I open it up, and it's from Pastor Russell, and he says, are you still interested in the position? So I beat up laying in a bed 
No, I can't do anything for six to eight weeks. And who is this crazy man coming back a year from now asking if I still want a job? And so my response was very honest with maybe and a question mark because I didn't know what was going on. Um, But then God started to work through a lot of things. I, I did those 10 days in the hospital and then I did another five weeks in a, a nursing home environment. They called me the teenager while I was there. Uh, but I was recouping there. And every day, this, this pastor of this church kept checking in on me. How are you doing? How are you doing? And I started to pray, okay, God, this is kind of weird. I don't know what you're doing. But he was saying, it's my will in my time, in my way. And then he said, if you wait, you're going to be able to do what I want you to do. And so time went by and Russell and I met together, met with the elders and obviously something worked because here I am. But I had waited, we moved to Florida three years ago and I had waited that whole time for a ministry position. Interviewed at several places, didn't know what God was doing. I've been in ministry all my life, and so it's kind of what I do. Went back and taught high school for a while, and there were lots of days I was saying, God, why aren't you looking at my will in my way in my time? There are all these places that need somebody, and I think I'm pretty good at what I do, so what's happening? But God said, you got to wait. And for me, he kind of had to get my attention, I guess, because I was down and out. And then I saw what God was doing. And without a doubt, I know now what God's will was, what God's way was, and what God's time was. And that brought me here. And so when I look at David and think about those eight years that he's running from Saul, I can kind of freshly relate to that experience of, God, I know you, you've anointed me. You, you've, you've said I'm, I'm called out. What's going on? Why are you not making it happen? So David said, even during that time, I'm going to still respect Saul. And we see that in a couple of stories in uh, 1 Samuel, where David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't take it. And one of these is a pretty familiar story, the other one not so much. Um, This first one uh, says this, I'll just read through it and then we'll talk about it. He came to the sheep pens, he here is Saul, along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off from a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for he had cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When the Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, 
Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. So let's look at what happens here. So David and his men um, have been just trying to stay out of Saul's way, and they wind up in this cave, and they're hiding. So they've been there a while. Their eyes are well adjusted. And then one of the few times in the Bible that you're going to hear anything about the bathroom happens here, which makes this a really fun story with junior high boys. Uh, but Saul goes in, and he's relieving himself. And I tend to think he must have been pretty intense in this because David is able to crawl over to him and cut off a piece of his robe without Saul even noticing. And he gets back out and all of his men are like, dude, I don't know if they said dude, but it's Hebrew for something, I'm sure. But it's a dude, this man is right here. You can become the king you're supposed to be, just kill him. And David said no, and even felt a little guilty at what he had done. So Saul leaves. I'm sure all of David's um, men are like, I don't even know why you were doing that. It's so crazy. But David comes out, and in this, he, he says, yo, Saul, look. Um, I don't know if you sound that much like Rocky, but he said, look at this. I could have killed you and I didn't. Here's a piece of your garment, but you're chasing me because you think I want to kill you. Don't you understand that if I cut this off of you in the cave, that's not what I want to do. I'm not going to touch you because I believe God still has you in charge. And that really didn't work well on Saul, he continued to pursue David, but David's men started to get the picture a little bit more, I believe, there. Um, And so that was the first time that David could have killed Saul. Then there's another story that's not so popular, um, but also a second time that he had this chance. So a few months later, Saul and his army are in the desert of a place called Ziph, and it's just a wide open plain with rolling hills. There are virtually no trees there. And David had sent some spies in to see what was going on just so he would know where not to be. Because remember, um, he, um, um, he had in the cave the time, the, motive, the means, and the opportunity. But he said he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed because... David knew that he was waiting on God's will and God's time and God's way. And so this time comes and the whole army, Saul's army, about 3,000 men are camping out and sleeping for the night. And Saul, like most kings of the time would have done, put himself right in the middle. So all of his army was there to protect him. And David sees this, and he has this friend named Abishai, who's there as well, and David's kind of like, let's go check this out, and so they go, and in that time, the king would have taken his spear and put it next to his head in the ground so he'd be ready for battle. His water jug was right there too, and so um, this is what starts to happen. David and Abishai start talking about this being an opportunity to kill Saul. And David's like, no, God's 
will, God's way, God's time. I'm not going to do that. But Abishai said, well, God didn't tell me to do that, so let me go in and kill him. And David is uh, very um, wise, and this is kind of how that plays out. Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. I mean, he knows he can just go in and, and he's dead. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So what David ends up convincing Abishai to do is just to go in kind of like what happened in the cave and sneak over and take the sword and take the water jug. And so that's what happens. And that's all that David does at this point. Uh, but that's not where David stops. He goes on to say, so David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill, some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where the king's spear and water jug that were near his head. So David does this. He goes and gets the spear. He gets the water jug. And just as morning is coming, it's kind of this big silhouette shadow uh, above where the guys were sleeping. He calls out to Abner. And Abner is the chief bodyguard of the king. And rather than taunting Saul, he taunts Abner and says, yo, you're supposed to be like the big guy. You're the bodyguard that we're all supposed to be afraid of. And look what I was able to do. You're kind of bad at your job, aren't you? And he ridicules him and he says, it's so bad that you probably should be put to death because you didn't even protect the king a little. I could have killed him at that time. But then again, David didn't take that opportunity. So we've seen two full opportunities where David could have become king by just knocking Saul off. But he chose not to do that uh, because he said that he believes in God's will and God's time in God's way. Um, so he ends up sparing Saul's life and goes on again. His men just kind of disappear into the desert and get away, continuing to um, stay away from Saul. And so then we're going to skip a lot here in the middle, uh, but I do challenge you to go back and read it because like I said, First Samuel, great book. Um, but Saul and his oldest son, Jonathan, end up getting killed in battle. And David has the chance to finally become king in the way that he, he knew was right. And not only did he uh, know that that time had come, the Bible tells us something that's really important. A lot of times I say, don't overlook the little words. David mourned for Saul and for Jonathan. 
At that time, he was really sad and upset that they had died, even though he knew God's will was working through, which I think is a great testament to the way he was really after God's heart. Because he and Jonathan had been best friends, but Saul had thrown things at him, tried to kill him a lot of times. But he still respected who he was so much that when Saul finally died, he wept. Um, so all of that happens That's with a battle with the Philistines. And those two men who stood in the way of David becoming king were, were dead now. And um, David's time to be king comes, but he only ends up becoming the king of the tribe of Judah, the one he was from. And so there were 11 other tribes that were there, and Saul had another son whose name was Ishbosheth, and he claimed to be king over those other 11 tribes, um, and David was the king over one. So eight years have gone by, he's run around, hidden, waited for God to do what God's going to do. And then when the time comes that Saul and Jonathan are gone, he still can't be king of the whole kingdom because um, Ibosheth comes up and says, I'm going to rule the other 11. And so David's like, okay, um, I'm waiting on God's will and God's time and God's way. And again, his men are saying, it's one guy. God told you you were going to be king. Let's go down there and get something done. And David says, no. I'm not going to touch God's anointed. I'm going to wait for God's will and God's time and God's way. And then these two brothers got together. And uh, their names were Rechab and Banna. And they tried to take matters into their own hands. So they sneak into the palace of Ishbosheth And they go into him while he's taking a nap and cut off his head. And they bring that head to David. Now... That sounds really gross and gruesome in our day and age, but you know why they took heads to show people, don't you? It's because they didn't have iPhones. They didn't have a way to take a picture. And so they either had to lug a whole body or lug a head to prove that somebody was dead. So that's what they're doing. Um, they take that head and they're running in and they're like, we are the champions, my friends, because they are so excited that they have finally set David up and he is going to be able to, uh, to finally be the king over all of Israel. And so then this is what happens. Um, it tells us there that they had gone into the house while he was lying on a bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head, taking it with them. They traveled all night by the way of the Arabah. They brought in the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord and the king against Saul and his offspring. And I just kind of picture them standing there together with the head and being like, Yee! Um, they are really like, we are going to be like so rewarded for this because he's going to be king and we're going to get to be big, smart, good people and be knights. I don't know what they were thinking, but they were excited about it. And then David gives a very unexpected response to this. David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, the sons of Rimon, the Bierotite. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for 
his dues. Now, I kind of skipped that part. Uh, somebody came already to David once and said, good news, Saul is dead, and claimed that he had killed him. And that's really not what happens, we find out in, uh, later on. But he said he killed him. And David, instead of raising him up, again, God's will and God's time and God's way, Saul was still the anointed one. He had that man put to death for killing the king. And so these guys come in and they've killed another king and they're thinking the same thing. And David says, don't you remember that somebody already tried this and this was the way I responded. So then he goes on to say, how much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed should I not demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. So David knew that God was going to work this out. He kind of says to the guys, God had a plan and he didn't need you to make it happen. But you stepped in here and you tried. And so you don't deserve to live because you were trying to make it your time and your will and your way, and that's not the way that God works. And so uh, they end up not only killing those guys for doing what they shouldn't have done, but as a sign of respect, they bury the head. And there's kind of a ceremony and things show how respected he was and how honorable he was. And then David ends up making this covenant with Israel, kind of saying, I'm going to be a king, not the king, because the king of Israel will always be God. And he says, because of that, I'm going to try and be the servant king to you. And so he goes through and he waited 15 years to get to where he was. He was 30 when he became king and he ruled for 40 years. Um, and during those times that David was waiting, he did learn some important lessons. He learned that leadership is stewardship. Kings are accountable. Don't try to take things in your own hands. And greatness doesn't come from power, but from putting others first. David biggest lesson was God's will in God's time in God's way. So then a thousand years later, 20 miles south of Jerusalem, there is that town of Bethlehem that comes up again. And there's another king that is born there in not the way people would have expected, not in their will, in their time, in their way, but in God. And that child grows up, does a lot of great things. And then one night he has a dinner with his friends. And he begins that time with them saying this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Then we skip a few verses and he says to them after this, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. So a thousand years later, in this baby is born in the city of David, grows up, and he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah that they have waited for. And this night comes, and he knows that he's getting ready to go through a really horrible trial that is fake, and he's going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. And he knows what great responsibility that is and how it's going to change everything. And rather than sitting down with those 12 guys and letting them in on that and saying, God's going to use me and it's going to be really cool. He stops and he becomes a servant. He does something that no king, no leader, no respectable person at the time was required to do. He did the job of a servant. He went and individually washed each disciple's feet. Don't miss the little words. He didn't skip Judas. Every one of them he served at that time and washed their feet. Well, Jesus becomes the primary example, not only of the way we should live our lives every day, but the way we should look at the leadership that God has given us. We look at the story of David, and we look at the story of Jesus, and we understand what leadership should be. And I don't know... um, where you are in your spiritual walk today. Um, But I just want you to know that Jesus put you and I before himself, and he lived like one of us. He served, he died and rose again. So death, that's our real enemy, would no longer have claim over us. He gave us the one gift that he could only give, and that is eternal life. And God, in that moment, changed everything. And all we have to do is accept the gift that God gives us. We just have to admit to him that we're sinners and tell him and confess our sins and say, I know I've done wrong. I want it to be right. You got to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did die and raise again, and he is the chosen one that God sent us, and then commit our lives to living and trying to be more like him every day. And I don't know. If you have never done that, you've never really contemplated it, but today would be a day to start that conversation. And I would love to talk to you about it. Pastor Russell, lots of people in this room would love to just help you walk along that path to try and figure that out. So um, one way that businesses today try to improve their leadership is with a mission statement. And Jesus had one himself, and it was, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' mission statement was, even though I am the one, I'm coming here not to get service, not to get praised here on earth, but to serve you and give my life up for you. The greatest leader that ever lived the most unselfish person that ever walked this planet, but had the power to call the angels to do whatever he wanted, chose to be a leader who served those around him. So you may be 
a dad or a mom or a big brother or a big sister or maybe you're the president of a company or the CEO or maybe you're just somebody that answers the phone. But in all of our situations, God has given us a role of leadership. And to serve in the way that God would have us to do, we need to look back at the way David approached that and even more importantly, the way that Jesus approached that. Leadership is servanthood. And that's what God requires of us. And the beautiful picture of that is in his son and what he did to come here. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just overwhelmed by your word and what it has to say to us. God, I look at a man like David and think, I don't know if I could respond in the ways that he did. I don't know if I could look beyond my own will and my own time and my own ways to wait all of that time for you to do what you had planned. I don't know that I would have been such a great servant leader, but God, what encourages me as I read this is many people didn't think that David could do it either, but through your power, he did. Remind us of that, God. In those hard times when leadership gets to be a struggle for us and we want to just dive in and roll over things, remind us that you came to serve and your leadership was one of servanthood. And Help us to say, instead of just running through this and saying my way or the highway, we're going to depend on you and we're going to wait for your will in your time, in your way. God, I just pray that as we leave here today, you'll remind us of your love and your mission statement, how you came to seek and to save those who are lost. You didn't come to be served and help us to live our lives looking for opportunities to share. In Jesus' name.